Well, it's my joy and privilege to introduce our speaker this morning here at Salem, uh, Pastor John King. Pastor John King has been in the ministry of faithful gospel proclamation for over 45 years. His last pastorate was in Johnson City, uh, Johnson City Chapel in Princeton, West Virginia. Would you join me in welcoming John King to our stage this morning? Well, it is a joy to be here. I appreciate the invitation to come and minister here at Salem Baptist Church. Salem has always had a special place in the hearts of my wife, Jeannie, and me. We were students at Piedmont. Uh, she started in 1969. I started in 1970. And uh, in those days, all freshmen were required to go to Salem the first semester. And a lot of people felt like that wasn't a good thing and didn't like that being too restrictive. But my wife and I always counted it a privilege to sit under the ministry of a man that we esteemed very highly, Dr. Stevens. And so that was a wonderful experience for us. I've known several of your pastors through the years. Uh, Wayne Fulton uh, was a very good friend of mine. We were together as students at Piedmont and also Howard Wilburn a very dear friend. In fact, I worked with Howard in his first church up in Daniels, West Virginia as his youth pastor in 1970 and 71, and um, we have remained friends through the years. So our hearts uh, are, are glad to be here today, and we have a special place in our heart for this ministry. I think it was about 20 years ago, I was on my way to a board meeting at Appalachian Bible College, and I had pulled off a four-lane highway down an exit ramp and was getting ready to turn onto another four-lane road that led me up to the college. And at that time, there was no uh, traffic signal at that light and so, or at that intersection. And so I was focused on how to navigate the traffic and get out into that lane that I could get to the college didn't realize what was happening behind me until I heard the squeal of brakes. And I looked in my rearview mirror just at the moment a truck rammed into the back of my car. Police said probably doing about 50 miles an hour. I'm not sure why. He must have been uh, his mind in, in space somewhere, but it was quite a collision. And I remember as the car was being propelled out into that other four lanes of traffic, I thought, I can't do a thing. I am completely helpless. I've never felt so out of control in all my life. I do remember saying, God help me. And uh, of course, when I was thrust out into the other traffic, another car hit me on the side, and so there I was. I've never felt so out of control in all my life. Uh, I, the car was extremely damaged. The back of the car was pushed all the way up into the, the back seat. The, uh, and the side, of course, was messed up pretty bad. I couldn't move, couldn't get out of the car. And so my phone, which had been resting on the seat beside me, was in the floor too far for me to reach. There's no way I could call Dr. Anderson and let him know that I could not chair the meeting that day, that the vice chairman of the board would have to take over. I couldn't even get a hold of him. I couldn't call my wife to let her know what had happened. Feeling so helpless, so out of control. Thank the Lord there were no serious injuries. Car was gone, but that was okay. But life is sometimes like that, isn't it? Life sometimes feel like, feels like it's out of control. All of us go through times when we feel like something is out of control, and we probably also all go through periods of life when we feel like just about everything is out of control. There are lots of reasons for that. Maybe you simply have too much to do, 
and you don't see how you're going to be able to get it all done. You feel overwhelmed just with the to-do list that you have. Maybe people have said something or done something to you that was unjust, wrong, but there's no way for you to clean up the mess and clear the air. Maybe your own unwise decisions have caused your life to spin out of control, or maybe you've hit a real crisis time in your life. Maybe you've hit a real tragedy or a deep trial, a job loss, a life-threatening diagnosis, a family crisis, a death in the family, whatever may bring those episodes into your life that make you feel that life is out of control, we all are there at some point, and I am convinced there are people here this morning who are there right now. So I'm here to tell you this morning that when life seems out of control, God is still in control. Theologians call that the sovereignty of God, the fact that God is on his throne, he rules over all, he superintends all of his creatures, all of his creation, he is in control. And he is also in control of the daily events of our lives, theologians call that the providence of God. We're going to look today at a passage in the life of our Savior where it would seem that life would have been out of control for him. The story is found in John chapter 18. It is the arrest of our Lord. Now, I've never been arrested. You may be glad to hear that. But I would assume that when you get arrested, you're out of control. I mean, you're not in control of what's happening. You're not in control of where you're going. The authorities are in complete control. So if there were a time in Jesus' life that it would appear that he would be out of control, that the situation was out of his control, the events and circumstances were beyond his control, it would appear that it would be at his arrest. But that is not at all how the gospel writers describe that event. In John chapter 18, we have a description by the Apostle John that tells us actually that Jesus was in complete control of everything that was happening there that day. And because of that, we have an example of the reasons why we can trust God when life seems out of control. In this passage, the first 12 verses of John 18, there are four reasons why we can trust God when life seems out of control. The first reason is because of his knowledge. If you have your place in John 18, let's read the first four verses. I'll read you. Please follow along. John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often went there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Now, in John's account of this uh, arrest of the Lord Jesus, 
there's a gap between verses 1 and 2. John doesn't give us all the information. The other Gospels fill in the information. The missing information here is that Jesus went, as you recall, once he got to the garden, three separate times further into the garden with Peter, James, and John. Then going a little further, he prayed earnestly in agony. In deep sorrow, he prayed, Father, if it could be your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he would come back and find the three disciples asleep, and then he would go back. Those three seasons of prayer occurred. At the time Jesus was in prayer, verse 2 is happening. Judas is gathering the people needed for the arrest of Jesus. Now, verse 3 says that Judas procured a band of soldiers. I don't know about you, but I've always kind of felt like just a handful of soldiers, you know, were there to arrest Jesus. But the Greek word for band, steron, means a cohort, a Roman cohort of soldiers. Now, a Roman cohort was 600 soldiers. Now, because of the setting and so forth, there are many who feel like that maybe there weren't quite that many there. Maybe it was just like saying the fire department put out the fire, but of course the whole fire department didn't show up. There were representative firefighters. But the word was also used, steron was also used, of a smaller group of soldiers called the Roman Maniplay, which was 200 soldiers. It's quite possible that knowing they might face some resistance, 200 soldiers were sent on this mission to arrest Jesus. So this is the situation in the garden. A long line of soldiers, chief priests, Pharisees, representatives of the temple guard wind their way to the garden with, with torches and lanterns. And this looks like the perfect place to arrest Jesus. It's away from town, so if there is a skirmish, nobody will hear. It's the middle of the night, so it won't cause any crowd to gather in support of Jesus. This is the perfect time and the perfect place. The soldiers and Judas and the chief priests are surely in control, right? No, because Jesus knew exactly where he needed to be. Jesus knew where he was going. The Bible says here that he went into a garden. We know it, of course, as the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, if you're familiar with the events of the last week of Jesus, you know that he did not always spend the nights during the Passover feast in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, we know that earlier in the week, he had been staying at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus in Bethany, about two miles over the Mount of Olives, away from Jerusalem. But on this night, when he leaves Jerusalem, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. Why? I, I believe Jesus deliberately went to a garden. Why? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 refers to Jesus as the last Adam. The first Adam faced a battle with Satan in a garden. The last Adam will also face a battle with Satan in a garden. The first Adam fell in a garden. The last Adam will conquer that enemy in a garden. The first Adam sinned in a garden. The last Adam will conquer the sin and temptation in a garden. The first Adam hid himself in a garden. The last Adam will openly present himself to be taken in line with the Father's will to present himself as our sacrifice for our sins. 
Now, this is deliberate. Jesus has chosen to go to a garden to demonstrate that he, the last Adam, is here to undo all that the first Adam brought into the human race. But there's more here. In order to get to that garden, Jesus had to cross the brook Kidron, it says in verse 1. That's an interesting brook, and it's a valley there, the valley, the Kidron Valley. But when you think of a valley, don't think of the kind of valleys that we normally think of, of long stretches of open plain between mountains. Well, the Kidron Valley was so narrow that all there was room for was the, the brook Kidron. You see, the hill, Mount Moriah, the Temple Mount, falls off sharply on the southeast corner of the temple down to Brook Kidron and then rises immediately on a more gentle slope up the Mount of Olives. So there's really only room for the Brook Kidron. As Jesus walks down to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is up on the slope of the Mount of Olives, he steps across that Brook Kidron. Now, because of its location... At the southeast corner of the temple, the Brook Kidron became the channel, the drainage ditch for the blood of the sacrifices offered in the temple. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that over 200,000 lambs would be offered during Passover. And so the Brook Kidron is stained with the blood of all of those sacrificial lambs. And it is as though... Jesus, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, steps beyond the blood of those lambs that would represent him and foretell him and typify him on his way to that sacrificial offering of his life. There's huge symbolism in where Jesus was. He knew exactly where he was going. But he also knew exactly what was going to happen. Verse 4 tells us that. When they came to arrest him, verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? He, he steps out to present himself to them. He knew all that was going to happen. He was not surprised. He knew that he would be arrested. He knew all about the mockery of a trial. He knew all about the beatings and the scourging. He knew all about the cross and the death that he would suffer, and he knew all about the resurrection. He's already foretold those, prophesied them to his disciples on numerous occasions in the last few weeks. So he knows everything that's going to happen. He is not caught off guard. He is not surprised. And my friend, in your life and in my life, God knows where he's going, and he knows what's happening. God knows what's happened in your life. He knows your past. He knows where you've come from. God knows everything that's happening in your life right now. And he knows everything that will happen tomorrow and next week and next year. There's no plan B in God's plan. There is is no contingency in God's plan. He knows. He knows what's happening. There are no surprises. He's never caught off guard. He knows what's going on with you. And one of the reasons why we can trust him when life seems out of control is because of that knowledge. Back uh, years ago, our first ministry was in central North Carolina, Seagrove area, uh, Needham's Grove Church, and we began there in 1973, 50 years ago. And so uh, I remember in those days, before we had all the technology that we have today, you remember chalk artists? 
that would come to churches and do messages and do a chalk drawing that corresponded to their message. Well, we had one of those come on a Sunday evening service one time. Some of you may remember him, Terry Martin, who was the Christian service director at Piedmont during those days. Um, he came to our church on Sunday night and was going to do this chalk draw. I'd never seen one. And, and so I was amazed as he set up his equipment, you know, that huge board that he had with the lights hanging over the top of it and the tray of different colored chalk at the bottom of it. And it was amazing to me just to see that. And then he got started. He put on the little dust jacket over his suit so that he wouldn't get a chalk dust all over it. And he started drawing that drawing and talking about what it was going to be. But the first move he made with, that, with a black piece of chalk was to stand in front of the board, pause for just a moment, and then go like that. It was just an ugly black streak across that canvas. And I thought, well, poor man. I felt sorry for him. I thought he must be nervous or something. Didn't seem to bother him, though. He just went right on working on another piece of the canvas and then over here and down here, and he'd smooth out things, and he kept working. And before long, it became apparent that he was drawing the hill and the three crosses, Calvary and the three crosses. And when he got done and started showing those different lights that brought out different features, you could see that that dark black streak was the top and the side and the base of the mountain on which Jesus died. You know what? He knew all along what he was doing. I, I couldn't figure it out, but he knew all along exactly what he was doing. God, the great artist in our lives, knows exactly what he's doing. His knowledge is one of the reasons we can trust him when life seems out of control. But we can also trust him when life seems out of control because of not only his knowledge, but because also of his power. Look at verse 4 again. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now get the picture here. The garden is now awash with the light of the lanterns and torches of the soldiers and chief priests, revealing 11 shadowy figures and one commanding figure who steps out from his disciples and says, who are you looking for? And when they respond, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he, but actually he did not say, I am he. I'm using the ESV, and the ESV has a note at the bottom that says, the Greek says, I am, also in the rest of the verses here. doesn't have the word he. If you have a King James Version, you may find that the, the word he is italicized, which means that it was not in the original uh, language, the Greek that was written, this was written in, but it was added by the English translators supposedly to make it read better in English. And it does read better in English. The problem is it doesn't communicate what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not saying, I am he. He was saying, I am. Does that sound familiar to you? Do you remember the story of Moses at the burning bush? And God is telling him, you are going to deliver my people from Egypt and he's beginning to make excuses. And the very first one is, well, well, who, will, who will I tell them sent me? And God said, tell them I am that I am. Tell them I am sent you. 
It's actually the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah. It's the personal name for God. The covenant-keeping, faithful God is sending you. The I Am is sending you. That's the name that Jesus proclaims, demonstrating that He is God in human flesh. He is the I Am. And at the moment that he speaks that, he demonstrates his power. Because the Bible says there in verse 6 that when Jesus said that to them, they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine? 200 soldiers falling backwards on their backs, Judas falling on his back, chief priests falling on their back. It is though they have been hit by the blast wave of an atomic bomb because this is the same power that stilled storms, calmed the winds, healed the sick, and even raised the dead. This is the power of the great I Am, Jesus, the Son of God. He demonstrates His power. So now tell me who's in control of this situation. Is it the soldiers? Not by a long shot. They're lying on their backs. It is Jesus who is in control. They have come to arrest him. They find themselves arrested by him. They see his great power. He is the one who's in control. But don't miss this. Although he demonstrated his power, he also then restrained his power. As we'll read on in just a moment, we'll find that Jesus did not exercise that power again until Peter tries to take over. We'll come to that in just a few moments. But Jesus restrained his power. It's obvious by now that those who are coming to arrest Jesus realize they are in way over their depth. Jesus could speak one more word and annihilate all of them. But he doesn't. He has demonstrated his power, and now he restrains his power. He offers himself willingly to go to the cross just as he has prophesied he would back in chapter 10 where he said these words about the Father's will for him. John chapter 10 and verse 16 he said this, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus, although he has exercised his power, and everybody knows now who's in control, he then restrains his power and allows himself to be taken, willingly gives himself to go fulfill the Father's plan on the cross. Back in 1992, a Southern Baptist missionary in Tanzania by the name of Rob Moore was traveling with a national pastor to a city far away to do some evangelistic work and they were involved, about 60 miles away from their little town, they were involved in a, a collision 
with another car in a little village. Neither one of them were hurt, but there were five people in the other car, and four of them were injured slightly. One of them was injured pretty seriously. He was going to have to be taken to a hospital. So Rob Moore and his national associate got out and began to pray with a crowd that had gathered for the people who had been injured and especially the one who was going to the hospital. Well, Rob Moore was able to make his way on back to his hometown. The uh, national pastor stayed for about 48 more hours to arrange for the car to be picked up and taken back home. And in those 48 hours, another national pastor and some laymen met with him, and they began to do some witnessing of people in the town because there was a lot of interest about this accident. And so they began to do some witnessing. Fourteen people in those 48 hours, 14 people came to know Jesus as Savior. And they started a little church in that village. Do you know what they named that church? By the way, this is a true story. I've told this story before, and after a service one time, a lady came up to me and said, Rob Moore was my pastor before he went to the mission field. I know all about that story. It's a true story. You know what they named the church? Accident Baptist Church. <laughs> Serious. A testimony to the fact that even what we deem to be an accident is under God's control. So he restrains his power. He demonstrates his power, but sometimes he restrains his power. And that's something we all need to grasp as we grow in Christ. Sometimes God demonstrates his power magnificently in our lives, and sometimes he restrains his power. Sometimes when he restrains his power, it doesn't seem to be coming through for us, you know? We are so self-centered. It doesn't seem to be coming through for us. It is because he has a different purpose and plan. There's never any question about God's power. He's always powerful. The only question is, what is his purpose? Sometimes it requires he demonstrate his power. Sometimes it requires he restrain his power. So we can trust God when life seems out of control because of his knowledge, because of his power. Thirdly, because of his compassion. Look at verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now, I think it's quite clear that those who came to arrest Jesus intended not only to arrest him, but any disciples that were with him. I mean, might as well, if you're going to clean out things, clean out the whole bunch. And so they had, obviously were going to arrest all of them. So Jesus has demonstrated his power to them. They're a little bit intimidated right now anyway. And so he presents himself a second time, asking the same question a second time, whom do you seek? That is drawing the attention to him, not his disciples. And after the demonstration of his power, his request to let his disciples go, well, that seems pretty reasonable, doesn't it? And so the authorities are going to let them go. But Jesus is doing this in accord, as verse 10 tells us, or verse 9, he did this in accord with the, the word he had spoken back in John chapter 6 and verse 39, of those whom you gave me, I've lost not one. So Jesus had made a promise back in chapter 6. He's fulfilling that promise right now. And that promise is, I will not lose one of these men. None of them will be taken and crucified with me or taken here in the garden. That's not going to happen. 
So his compassion for them demonstrates his control over the situation. You know, my friend, God has made you promises that are very similar to that, that he made to his disciples. Let me just remind you of some of those in Romans chapter 8. You know this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are the called according to his purpose. Sometimes we stop there and we don't get the gist of the idea as to what his purpose is. Verse 29 tells us, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's his purpose for you and for me. Those that God knew from eternity past, he marked out ahead of time, he predestined for this purpose, that is to be conformed to the image of his Son, to make us like Christ. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? So that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And then he goes on to give us some promises. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And he goes on making all these promises about God has done the greatest for us. He's justified us. He's given everything to us. So he's not going to let anything take us away from him. And you know those great ending verses in Romans 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation Put your name in here. What are you going through right now? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation. That includes what you're going through today. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In God's great compassion for you, he has made you promises that nothing will ever happen to you that can ever separate you from his arms and his love. You are eternally secure and eternally loved in the arms of your Savior. His compassion, we can trust him when things seem out of control. But there's a final reason, and that is because of his sacrifice. Because of his sacrifice, verses 10 through 12. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Well, what's happened so far has just been too much for Peter. Peter's never been one to stand by and be an observer of what happens. He's got to be a part of the action. So he whips out that short hidden sword under his cloak, and he starts whacking away. First guy he can find. Now, I don't know whether the guy ducked or whether Peter's just a better fisherman than he is a swordsman, but he just got his ear. Can you imagine, immediately, 200 swords, Roman soldiers, clang their swords out of their sheaths. Now, we're tempted to think, way to go, Peter. Somebody finally stood up for Jesus, right? Well, yeah, but it could have cost every one of them their lives. Because I'm sure every Roman soldier was ready to spring into action and, 
and take this thing down immediately. So Jesus steps in and takes control. First of all, he says to Peter, put your sword up. I'm going to drink the cup the Father's given me. Luke tells us that he said, no more of this, probably to the whole group, including the soldiers. And Matthew tells us that Jesus also said to Peter, don't you know that I could call 12 legions of angels and they would come just at, at my notice? Now, I don't think we understand what Jesus was saying there. A Roman legion, that's a military term, was 10 cohorts. If a cohort is, excuse me, 12 cohorts. If, if a Roman cohort is 600 soldiers, do the math, we're talking about 72,000 angels that are perched on the edge of heaven just waiting for the signal from Jesus, and they will come and deliver him. You remember the story in the Old Testament where one angel slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers? Remember that story? Can you imagine what 72,000 angels would do? Does Jesus need Peter's help? No. He's got plenty of reinforcements. But that's not the point. The point is, he will not die prematurely. That's the point. His sacrifice is planned already for the next day. He will die at the very hour when the evening sacrifice would be offered in the temple. The way in which it is done, the trials, the mockery, the cross, everything is to fulfill Old Testament prophecy. That can't happen till tomorrow. So Jesus will not die prematurely, but he will die sacrificially. He will give himself as an offering. When Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? That's a reference to Old Testament terminology, especially in the book of Psalms. The cup is often referred to as the cup of God's wrath. God pours out his cup on the nations or on the wicked or whatever. God's wrath is being poured out. And Jesus, by speaking of the cup, is talking about the wrath of God for man's sin will be poured out. And that will happen tomorrow. I will drink that cup that the Father has prepared for me. So he will not die prematurely, but his sacrifice will be just on time. He will die sacrificially. You see, even the timing and the nature of his sacrifice shows that he is in control of this situation. My friend, no matter what you're going through, no matter how out of control some aspect of your life may be or all of your life may feel, God is in control. You can trust his knowledge, you can trust his power, you can trust his compassion, and you can trust that because he sacrificed himself for you, he loves you that much. You know, I think maybe we need to start uh, saying more to God than just how big our problems are. Maybe we need to turn and tell our problems how big our God is. Do you want a reminder of how big God is? Let me just for a moment remind you what Isaiah 40 says in closing. Scientists tell us that the oceans of the world contain more than 340 quintillion gallons of water. 
Now, a quintillion is one with 18 zeros behind it. That's a big number. 340 quintillion gallons of water. Isaiah 40:12 says that God holds the oceans in the hollow of his hand. That's how big your God is. Scientists also tell us that the earth weighs six sextillion tons. A sextillion is one with 21 zeros behind it. That's a big number. And Isaiah 40, verse 15 says that on God's scales, it's like a piece of dust. It doesn't even measure weight. That's how big our God is. Scientists tell us, especially since the James Webb telescope was sent up and we're reaching further and further into space and seeing the magnificent expanse of space, scientists now tell us that there are 94 billion light years across the universe. Now, if I took the time to explain what a light year is, you probably know anyway, and then multiply that on out to a year that's an unimaginable number. I see some smoke rolling from some of your ears. You're burning some circuits already, right? It's just a huge, an imaginable number. And the Bible says that God measures the stars by the width of his hand, from his thumb to his little finger. That's how big our God is. Scientists tell us that there are 200 billion galaxies each with at least 100 billion stars. Think of that. Multiply 200 billion by 100 billion. That's how many stars there are. Isaiah 40, verse 26 says that God knows them all by name. It's not that he just knows the number. He's got a name for each one of those 100 billion stars multiplied by 200 billion. That's how big our God is. So whatever you're going through this morning, my friend, yes, do tell God about your problems. He wants us to do that. He cares. He says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. But do more than just telling God how big your problems are. Turn around and tell your problems how big your God is. He loves you and he cares for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the example of an event in Jesus' life that would seem by all human perspective to be out of his control. But thank you, Lord, in the way you caused John to record this by inspiration, that he showed us that Jesus was really the one in control. It gives us such great confidence, Father, that you love us and you're in control of the difficult times of our lives. Lord, whatever individual believers are going through in this assembly here this morning, whatever this church may be going through, I pray that when anything when life itself seems to be out of control, they will trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.